Pod Clubhouse. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song, and it's a good day. Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about episode five of season one of Hollywood, Jump. It was written by Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan, and it was directed by Michael Uppendahl. What'd you think of this episode, Caroline? I liked this episode for some reasons, and then other reasons I was like, I enjoyed that we picked up right at the cliffhanger, though I was surprised that Avis called people over at 2 a.m. Seems to me she has a very Ace Amberg way of handling things. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's good to be the king. As Mel Brooks taught us all those years ago, she has the keys to the kingdom. She can do that. Did you expect her to change her mind like this? I mean, I guess I did. I mean, I guess she had to, right? I mean, when Eleanor Roosevelt tells you to, like, rethink your situation, I think you've got to rethink your situation, right? Right, right, right. But I'm glad that that they also just didn't all roll over on it. That, you know, I'm glad that Lon was there to continue to be like, this is a mistake. You are making a mistake. Because that seemed more real to me, that it wasn't just, like, birds coming down to her shoulders and chirping as she made her right decision, if not if not business-wise, right decision. Do you think that she does have the authority to fire Lon? I don't know, but I actually laughed. I like that whole scene. She's like, and you're fired. I don't know if I have the power to do that, but if I do, you're fired. I thought the whole thing was really funny. Me too, and I kind of hope she does have the power to do it. Of all of the cast, I really like Dick and Ellen and Avis on her good days so, so much. They're really standouts for me. And this episode, I really actually cemented how much I loved the character of Dick Samuels. I, I think I think it's just, I think they're just doing a great job with it. So does Ellen too. Yeah, Ellen wants some of that. Everybody she wants, wants a little piece. She wants, she wants to get on that, Richard. What did you think of his argument comparing the decision here to, to Song of the South and how people protested that on this argument that people are ready for a change. Hollywood may not be ready for a change. The South may not be ready for a change, but the country as a whole is ready for a change. And they, they used the protest to Disney's shameful secret Song of the South as an example of that. Did you find that whole line of reasoning persuasive? I think so, because if you have a situation where someone is saying, well, they're going to boycott us, and then you can turn around and say, yeah, but look, this situation was being boycotted for the exact opposite reason, for people not being more open-minded and more thinking forward about uh, race relations. And so, come on now, you know, you you could use that argument for anything, Avis. So just, if that's why you're doing it, it's because you're afraid we're going to be boycotted, then move on. You're going to get it the other way, too. (laughs) You're going to get it both ways? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. When Dick's involved, it can come from all directions. Uh, you know, I think he actually makes, though, a smart second argument. He appeals to her sense of right, as does Ellen. You know, Ellen says, this town needs a swift kick in the pants. But that's that's one of the themes of this show. But he, Dick makes the argument that maybe convinces her in the end is he turns around and he points to the to the painting on the wall and says, that one painting alone will support you until the day you die comfortably. So really, what is your risk here? And that's a really persuasive argument. If, if you're trying to wrestle with what you know is right, with what you think maybe the right business decision is, if someone could convince you that the business decision doesn't really affect you at all, then fuck it. Why not go with the right decision? That's a nice way to think about it. And certainly financially, that's true. You know, I'm sure that she has friends who would not agree with this decision, no matter what, you know, and then she has friends that would feel differently. So, I mean, there there, there would be personal repercussions for getting involved in anything that would be controversial society-wise, right? So, I mean, it's a little short-sighted to say it that way. Sure, financially, you're right. She could keep money in the bank. That's true. 
though it was a little unclear at the outset of this discussion back in the screening room during screen tests last episode about how she really felt. And, and there has been this question about how Avis feels about black people going way, way back to the second episode when she gives Archie that look at the end of the episode. She has since come down on the side, it seems, that she'd like to cast Camille. She thinks Camille is the better choice, but for the business implications of it, wants to do the right thing, just hasn't been able to be pushed over the edge to do the right thing. He hits her in the final whack-a-mole to get her to do the thing she wants to do. Even if Ace wakes up, uh, is enraged, and tries to divorce her, with the money she'll get from divorcing him, she's set. She's set for life. So if you remove all the obstacles to do the right thing, and you want to do the right thing, why not do the right thing? I think it is a persuasive argument. Dick wins. So Avis makes the, this big choice and they're on to casting. This is a great Oz moment. All four of our actor leads in the show, they all get a part. Which was your favorite reveal of getting the part? Probably Ray jumping into the bathtub with Camille. I love that too. That was my very favorite. I can't really imagine anyone in real life doing it. So that makes me like super, super happy with that. That's a real enthusiastic moment to, to be so excited. You go jump in the tub in your full suit and shoes. That I like those two together. They have some ups and downs and they have some relationship issues because of the power dynamic of him being a director and her being an actress and working together that I don't think they have quite ironed out. But if you remove all of that, I like them as a couple. They seem together for the right reason. And who doesn't want to jump in a tub with her? Man, oof, all those bubbles. Sign me up. My whole thing was that just that just that a guy would be willing to ruin his shoes. <laughs> For me, it was the suit more than the shoes. Suits go through the wash. It's all good. But, but being willing to ruin your shoes, that's love. I, I actually really like the Claire scene, though, too. Avis was so taken aback by Claire's praise of her doing the right thing and telling her that she's proud of her. I mean, how important is it to hear someone say, I am proud of you? Those are powerful words when coming from a loved one. I think it's very important. And, and and I think in this particular case, when you take dad out of the picture and we've talked about this in other podcasts, but the idea of like dad being out of the house and being like, it's pizza night. And there's like that kinship between kids and moms. I think Ace being out of the picture allows them to refresh their entire relationship here. So I like it that they did that. I was at first unsure to believe Claire, whether or not she was like being sketchy here or whether she really believed this, but I fell in for it by the end and she was rewarded with Avis and the part. They're doing an interesting thing with her from how she kind of trails off the end of her screen test to how she was here in this opening scene. I'm struggling with her. I don't know if it's an acting choice. I mean, I think Samara Weaving is actually a pretty good actress. So I, I'm hesitant to lay blame at her feet versus maybe the part was written to express ambiguity. She was definitely introduced initially as the obvious villain to Camille. That's all of our initial interactions with her was setting her up to be someone that we should not trust, someone we should not like. But they've, they've really been dialing back on that. So my thought is that all of these kind of ambiguous moments go towards that character 180 that we're supposed to be experiencing for her. That she's growing as a person. That she realized Camille should have this part. That she then says to her last week, that she says to her mother this week, Camille was the right choice. And that she's proud of her for making a stand. And she, she appreciates what a hard decision is. I think these are all like, she's growing as a person and we're witnessing it literally in real time. I think that's what we're supposed to be taking from it. 
I'm not sure. If we did a character study on Claire, I don't know what I would make of her because there's certain things that have fallen into place to, like you said, like she was supposed to be the villain to Camille's leading lady. And then she was also set up as like being the spoiled kid of Ace and Avis and all these different parts that were like, okay, I, I think I kind of get her. And then other parts when she says and does things that you're like, mm, hang on a second, like she seems different than that. It's strange how she doesn't feel as layered and as fully formed as the other characters. It just seems like I have a lot of information about her and a lot of different moments for her, but they haven't gelled for me on who the hell Claire really is. Yes, she definitely is suffering from side character syndrome. Not as much time has gone into developing her character as some of our more core cast. There is a part at play here that the way she was introduced is the black and white part of Wizard of Oz, and the Claire that is emerging is this Oz version of her, that she's playing against type. The same argument that Dick will make to Archie and Ray at the page-by-page edit later is, I think, what we're experiencing here with Claire. They're moving her into this Oz state where she is beyond that. She is uh, she is an, an enlightened version of that. I think she's suffering from underdevelopment is not being one of the core core cast. Yeah, agreed. Rock I felt pretty terrible for in terms of how excited he was and how Henry has his ways of making you feel like shit, trying to dumb it down. I felt proud of him for trying to continue to be proud of himself for getting out there and doing what he did and managing to get any part at all. Yeah, and I think he actually got through to Henry a little bit. This is the Dr. Jekyll, who's a douchebag, and Mr. Hyde, who's a douchebag monster, kind of Henry Wilson. Like, he was a monster in this episode, but in a way that I found amusing. It was hysterical how he was dressing down the actor for eating hot dogs and milkshakes and not understanding why he's gaining weight and losing muscle. That whole scene was hysterical, because he wasn't saying he wanted to go get a gun and shoot the actor, Guy Madison. He was saying he wants to go get a gun and shoot himself. And then he takes out his real frustration on Rock's teeth. Just can't understand why Rock is so happy about the four lines. But I think I think Rock was improving Henry's mood in, a, in an actual way. I didn't mind Henry this episode. I guess that's what I'm saying. You know, the thing that made me sad on the Jack side was just that, just how uninterested Henrietta was. Well, sure. I mean, I think they're they're laying the Easter eggs, right? All episode on that. Yeah. I felt bad for him, though, because, I mean, even though I know she's got her own plan and, and you know, that's all going to fall out differently, I still think, you know, you can have your own plan and still be, like, proud of the person for getting their own little dreams happening over there, you know? Yeah. I, I think Henrietta's just, I think she's over it. She didn't really appreciate what they were getting into. Jack is definitely a little bit selfish. He keeps saying he's doing it for the family, but he's certainly doing it for himself and his ego also. I think it takes a certain kind of person to be in a relationship with that kind of actor and, and in that kind of relationship. It, it's a very specific kind of personality for a woman who wants to run the family store back in little town, Indiana. That's not the person who's going to be there for the ups and downs lifestyle of an actor who is out there trying to become famous. I had been waiting because I knew Queen Latifah was going to be in the show and playing Hattie McDaniel, you know, famous from Gone with the Wind. And we finally got to meet her this episode as the first woman of color, really, of Hollywood nominated for an Academy Award and the supporting actress role. I mean, she she is a big deal in Hollywood lore. It was a natural fit for her to enter the scene to call Camille and, and congratulate her on getting the role in the major motion picture and getting the lead role and talking about how, you know, Camille is out there doing it. But for me, it was this wild threesome take that opens the scene. She had just finished A Night of Lovin' with Tallulah and uh, Big Beefy Troy. 
That was wild. Of all the ways I expected to meet this character, I did not expect that. I was glad that they went through this concept of the aftermath of casting and that there were like highs and lows and goods and bads phone calls that were going to come in from people like Hattie. And, you know, I Tallulah just keeps coming back in, man. She just keeps popping back up. Like every time we think we're done with Tallulah, she like pops her head back in. She's got a sex drive to admire. I appreciate she girlfriend. I don't know when everywhere. she finds, <laughs> I don't know when she finds time to act or earn a living, but, uh, Ooh, she is she's she is burning up some bedposts. I also think that it was interesting to have the women bring back the the golden tip guy because I think that was a little you know wink to us like hey maybe the golden tip's not out of this yet and I'm sure for Camille that was wonderful to get that phone call. I also thought that it was great that they balanced it with that other more sinister phone call. Yeah, that is the call. Well, maybe maybe in today's age, maybe not a direct phone call, right? Because people block their numbers and stuff. That was the reaction you were waiting for. That was what the show had been prepping us for, was that there is a segment of the population that is not going to be okay with this. It was a little visceral seeing it come directly to their apartment line that people had that kind of access that you could call someone right at their home or have that kind of conversation but it was this really yin yang moment coming right off of the the hattie mcdaniel conversation a little bit of whiplash it made me really proud of avis that when they did share that with her that she was so quick to respond and say you know we'll keep you just being able to stay on the set and one of the bungalows i was like hey avis for not downplaying it and for you know really being careful about their safety making sure they have security and stuff that was like okay okay i think we're, we're dealing with that pretty well but you know this is obviously going to be a continuous concern moving forward so if someone told you i'd like to take photos of you without your clothes on but it would be done in a tasteful artful way how would you feel about that if, if this the person was a well-known photographer credited with making glamour shots a thing in hollywood hollywood glamour a thing would you, would you be more inclined to trust that person with doffing your clothes you know, I think in a situation that we were watching that exact type of scene with the lighting and the everything and there obviously being a lot of other people on set and all that kind of stuff, I think I would be pretty brave. I appreciated how they showed Jack's poses, but then the fact that we didn't see any for Camille, I didn't know if she agreed or didn't agree and I didn't know how modest hers were going to be compared to his. Now, given the time frame, I have to assume they would have been pretty discreet looking photos like, you know, well-placed pillows and whatnot because obviously his was i mean his legs were blocking things stuff like that i don't know those are more like provocative pictures as far as i'm concerned less like nudes per se i guess tasteful nudes still show nudity do you know what i mean and like this one was like well i mean yes he wasn't wearing clothes that's true but there wasn't really anything being shown either think back to the Hayes code that we talked about last week and all of that there probably is a limit to what they were actually able to photograph even in a tasteful way i wondered though about that kind of thing like where would these photos be shown well i think they're for his own portfolio i didn't get the impression that these are the kind of photos that get published anywhere necessarily not or not until later really okay yeah something tells me because you know george Orell was a was a famous photographer at the time he was a contract photographer for mgm for for years okay and then moved over to Warner Brothers and then actually, I think, ended his career essentially at Columbia, where he uh, was responsible for making Rita Hayworth famous with all of her famous pictures. If you look at the list of, of men and women that he photographed in Hollywood, it, it's a who's who's list of the most well-known names in Hollywood at the time during a 30-year period. And he eventually moved to Madison Avenue. He became an ad guy after these high glamour shots kind of fell out of favor of old Hollywood. But he is responsible, from, from what I read anyway, for making glamour 
photos a thing. Promotional photo that makes the actor and actress look like they just came out of a, uh, of a, a dream. Not like anyone would look normally going to like the supermarket. Um, yeah. He popularized that look. I love it on Saturday Night Live when they have the in-between cuts when you're coming back from commercial or whatever. And it's like the guest of the week is like dressed. Oftentimes they'll do like a glamour one with them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then you just see them in a completely different light, which is like so funny and weird because you're like, you know, I've been watching them this whole time for like an hour. And then you're like, that looks totally different. I appreciate it. Yes, I would totally do it. Uh, as would I. It would take me very little to take my clothes off uh, photography. <laughs> It just would. I mean, it's it's not that I think I have this fantastic body that the world should see. It's just, I don't know, it seems kind of like what you should do in that situation. It feels different because it doesn't feel like a nude in the sense of nude. It feels like provocative posing and stuff. And like, yeah, I mean, I think that that's when you have somebody on the other side of the camera who knows what they're doing. I think it would be fascinating to have that look at yourself and be like, yes, oh my gosh, you like got that perfect angle or whatever. Right. It wasn't porny. Like 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 we how we describe this show in a sexy, seductive way and not sexy porn way. You know, I didn't get the impression that those photos were going to be exploitive, just more provocative. Is the for, word. And photography of the human body and the human body being an art form, you know, with its curves and lines and such. Uh, one thing I did want to say, because we only because we mentioned it last week, I think we have firm confirmation now that Hollywood takes place in 1947. Because in the opening conversation when Dick mentioned Song of the South, he mentions it coming out last year, and it was released in 1946. So case closed on that one, right? Yes. And so last week, what was the, what was the clue last week that I thought we were in 1940? Oh, it was the Kraft Television Theater that Jean said she would go work at after resigning. Dun, dun, dun. Your unsolved mystery is solved. So other aftermath that we had was Jax being cast in the lead role is now going to result in his arrest record being revealed. Were you surprised that Henry was brought in as the cleanup man? He's got his finger in every stink hole in the town. So I guess no. I think I was a little let down about their interaction. I mean, he gives lip service to seeing the mugshot Henry does, and he chastises Jack for his position on morality at the tennis court when he wouldn't let Henry, you know, suck his wee-wee, but then getting arrested for solicitation. But other than that, there wasn't really any kind of additional blowback to, to Jack and his position. You know, it does not seem Henry set out to destroy him. I have a theory on that, but I'm curious, what, what was your reaction to and or take on Henry seemingly letting Jack off of the hook and, and in fact, helping him out? And, and and Avis and the studio out. It was pretty clear to me once, you know, he explained to Avis that he wanted to have the producer credit that it really went past Jack at that point. You know, Jack was small potatoes. So he just kind of moved on and was like, you know, I'll definitely help your guy, but I'm going to need this other stuff. You know, sort of good on Henry for recognizing the situation and being able to say, this is finally my chance to become something, you know, more and more, more money, more everything. I agree with you. I think Henry is definitely spiteful and petty when it suits him, but I don't think he is ever spiteful or petty to the point of cutting off his nose to spite his face. But above all else, he is cunning and he knows how to achieve the goals that he wants to achieve for himself. The chance to get this producer credit and, and, put, and put the studio in his debt far outweighed taking out some kind of hayseed like Jack. Henry gets to suck plenty of dicks. He doesn't really need Jack's, as it turns out. Did you expect that very graphic, very behind-the-scenes reveal of how Henry handles situations like this? I was really surprised that the Mafia came into this at all. Um, So I was a little taken back that these tough guys would work with someone like Henry at this time 
But at the same time, Henry is, you know, he's he's a big fucking dick in town. You know, he is a powerful guy. And at the end of the day, he's probably done favors. I think that was the the intimation we were supposed to get was that he had done favors and had helped clean up messes for the guy he has dinner with. Oh, definitely. He got the daughter the, the pony and got the wife like a meet and greet and all kinds of stuff. So for sure. The Betty Grable, I think it was, right? On the, the red carpet. Yeah. So so he, he is a powerful guy and people want to do favors for powerful men. It didn't surprise me that he was able to put it together. I think I was more surprised that that's just how it played out. I, I, always, I would always assume Henry is a blackmail guy. Straight blackmail and extortion. You know, no physical violence. I figured he would have had pictures on the writer, you know, on the reporter that he would have had ready to use or something like that. I was surprised to see that amount of uh, body work going on on that guy. Like, I was like, how much longer are we sticking around here? Like, there was one bone breaking that, like, seriously made me cringe. It was significant damage. I think maybe one of those injuries probably would have been sufficient to get up across their point. How fantastic it was. And you never want to root for violence. You never want to root for a bully. But it was pretty awesome seeing him come into the hospital room of the late of Dean and uh, kind of patent his broken leg and say, that one good leg, I'm going to come watch them break it if any of this gets out. Oof. Um, and rip your dick off. Oh, and then rip your dick off. That's a, That would be his grand finale. That's pretty rough stuff. Yeah, something tells me that Henry might have done that before, though. I don't think that's outside of the fetish play. See, for I am not wrong to be scared that someone would like bite your body parts off. Like, I, I don't think that's an unfounded fear. Men of my age all live with the knowledge of Lorena Bobbitt. That was a transformative experience that everything was all on the table at that point. I agree. It's too obvious. We were talking about the running around, uh, you know, in the episode at the pool and the, the floppage and everything. It's just too obvious of a part to lop off. I'm just sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah. <laughs> the idea of waking up and your penis is in a garbage dumpster a mile away from your house is just terrifying. Make sure you can trust the people you were with before you fall asleep and allow them access to your private part. <sighs> Always. This is the PSA you get from Welcome to Dreamland. Right. Podcast. Right. So uh, in addition to getting his producer credit, though, and, and solving Avis and Jack's problems with Tattletale Magazine... Henry is also going to be uh, taking care of, it seems, the studio's problems with all of these theaters around the country that don't want to air Ace movies now because of uh, the Camille casting decision. It seems that Henry will be employing his mafia friends to work out distribution issues that may arise. That one seems like a bigger far-fetch than the just hiding and arrest and, you know, keeping Jack, you know, more squeaky clean image-wise. The the distribution part, I was kind of like, mm, really? I mean, I don't know. I, I would love to think that the mafia has such strength in Alabama, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I want to say the KKK has more strength than the Mafia does. Sure. I, I agree with you on that point, but the, the Mafia in the country at this time was really still at the height of its powers. Um, it was it was pretty much still at the pinnacle of its powers. It wouldn't really start to decline for another decade or so. It's funny because, you know, us being in very different parts of the, of the country and having very different I don't know what to say, like relationships with things like the mafia. All I can say is that like, I like no part of me thinks about the mafia at all ever, but the KKK, like, I just don't know that now, I guess at the, at the distribution level, I guess maybe those decisions would be made by people, maybe not local. So maybe I'm going to say maybe they have a little more control. 
at least in New York anyway, I, I, I don't know anything about California, but at least in New York anyway, the mafia was well entrenched in all of the union uh, occupations, the movie workers and, and those kinds of unions and, and distribution, all those kinds of things. The mafia definitely would have had power and pull. And Alabama is not so far from New York and New Jersey. You know, if a drive was necessitated to go down there and crack some skulls, a drive would have been made down there. And that, that didn't actually bounce for me at all. In, in some ways, that actually seemed more plausible to me than beating the ever-loving shit out of a reporter to the point of death, of near death, for a story. That seemed like overkill to me more than the, than the mafia getting involved in solving distribution issues. So here's the funny thing. In doing a little research on it, the Dixie Mafia was actually far more... It's not that you boys are coming down here. We got our own people. That he probably had a little bit more control over. They were mostly active in the 50s and 60s, but they were really started after 1933 in Prohibition, and they spread across the Gulf Coast from Texas to Florida. So in that case, I'm going to think in my brains, maybe, just maybe, he has some in with them. One of the funny things that come out of this scene with Henry getting his producer credit was that he got Avis to agree to a, to put his name above Dick Samuels on, you know, the masthead, uh, you know, and the credits, which Dick had was like outraged a little bit, but also was kind of was also seemed to be uh, found a little humorous. Right. He seemed bemused by it. You know, he it was, the outrage seemed almost a little feigned, like he didn't really seem to mind too, too much. Maybe because in the grand scheme of things, he appreciated more what Henry was doing for the studio than his ego and where the credit would fall. But it led to a really funny scene a minute later when Henry walks in and sits himself down in a director's chair um, as they're fixing the Hollywood sign. And Dick comes in and right before Dick has his big explosion about the cost overrun, he walks by Henry and says fraud and, and Henry just shoots right back homo. And it made me laugh out loud for probably a solid minute. Just, just the really funny exchange of the retorts between them, I found very funny. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but it was like it was like a standout humorous moment for me. I always loved comedy deliveries where you just have like the, those one line. I had one recently that I was watching and the guy goes, can I be blunt? And the other one goes, gross. And I was like, that just made me laugh for like five minutes. I don't know. It just this is funny when it's just like quick like that and people just move on. It's just like because it's more like snark and like I love snarkiness. Yeah, me too. And neither of them seemed offended by it. You know, yeah. he walks by, he goes fraud and just homo. Snark. Like, and and they just went on with their day. Right, right. It wasn't like it wasn't like they were gonna have to duel at dawn for the offenses no. given to their honor. You know, you've besmirched me, sir. You've besmirched me. You know, it wasn't any of that. So it made me laugh out loud. Speaking of Dick and speaking of that scene, the reason that became an issue was budgeting. But the hard budget on this movie, which has been an issue since it was greenlit by Ace before his boning coronary, what was a, it's a very tight budget. Now with the fallout of boycotts and protests, the studio is even in more dire situations because its current movie in theaters is being banned. And we learn from Avis that that current movie is not going to make back its budget. And so Meg, as the movie is now known, which, you know, Archie was totally cool with changing the name of the movie because he gets to stay on the movie name now. He gets to stay the credited screenwriter. So he was totally cool with going from Peg to Meg, um, has to stay within its budget. And the initial budget uh, estimates from all of the different uh, division heads on the movie came in at $100,000 overhead. Dick is not happy about this. And Dick tells everyone, including Raymond, you have got to stay in budget. If you do not stay in budget, if you go a dollar over, it's not going to happen. What did you think was going to happen here? Did you think everyone was going to live within their means? Or 
did was Ray giving you inclinations that he, he was taking that more as a suggestion than a hard rule? I think that it showed his green nature of movie making that he did not take into account changes made verbally on the set and what the fallout would be of those things. I, you know, as much as I loved the behind the scenes stuff when it came to the prep for the screen test and like watching them do the makeup and the gym and hair and all that kind of stuff, something was not quite as interesting about this budget stuff as I think it could have been. I'm not sure exactly why it didn't hit me in the same way, but going around the table and them just saying how much, you know, was going to be the background scenery or how much costume or hair or whatever. And, you know, being like, well, I had four, you know, hairdressers. Well, could you make do with one? Okay. I don't, there was something about it that didn't, it wasn't as fun for some reason in a way that was like, you know, budgets are never going to be fun, but I don't know. It didn't have that same, we're peeking behind the curtain in Hollywood of how movies are really being made. This part was like, oh man, this is like the drudgery. Yeah, but I like that though because of that reason. I actually like I liked I like this behind the scenes, and then I really liked the the table read uh, scene where they introduce each other and and they say what they are and what they're doing and stuff. I liked both of those things where we got to meet the people who make because it's not something you ever think about. People who go to the movie theaters, very few people think about all of the different division heads and think of all the people that are working for all of those people in a movie and the amount of people that it takes to make a movie. You and I have talked about this a lot, how we both stay and watch credits and and, and people out there, everything. When you can eventually go to a movie theater again and watch a movie, stay and watch the credits, stay and see how many people it takes to make a movie. That's what they're talking about in this scene. And it is boring and it is dry. It is not sexy, but if not for these kinds of scenes and these kinds of things playing out in real life, the movies you love, the the Marvel blockbusters or like the quiet drama, they don't get made. Given the tone of the entire series and given the way that they've handled montage things in the past, you don't think that there's a way that they could have approached giving the same information with a little bit more panache? Maybe, maybe. I think I think they were trying to make, you know, some entertaining stabs at it by, you know, talking about all the flowers and the, the stylus and all that kind of thing. But I think a lot of what Dick is about Especially when Dick is in work mode. You know, we've seen, we've, I think we've been spoiled because we've seen a lot of Dick Samuels in creative mode. But this is, I think, the majority of what Dick does or these kinds of meetings. And I think his world is very dry. I think it's part of the reason he feels he has to live so, so buttoned up a life and so reserved a life is because of these kinds of business decisions that have to get made. So, yeah, I think it would have been more entertaining, maybe, but I appreciated the hewing to more realism about what they're discussing here. Because this is not something you would get, I think, in most TV shows dealing with making a movie or a TV show. I agree, but this would be this would be the evidence you would point at if you were making another show and said, you know, hey, most shows don't show the behind the scenes stuff. So, you know, should we add it in? And I'd point to this episode and be like, no. Because <laughs> this was a low point of the show. Either figure out how to do it differently, figure out how to show it in a different way, but this ain't the way. Like, have that... De- have Dick sweat it out with the, with the, you know, the actual budgets that he's looking at and stuff like that. I don't know what, but there's just something about it that just, it just did not go with the tone of the show. It didn't have enough going on for me. I appreciated though, that Ray had real life consequences to his very, oh, how we've been describing like off the cuff conversations with people, how he can just walk Mm -hmm. into someone's office and think he can start talking in a real blunt way, he was so ready to just change the scenery without thinking about what the fuck are you doing? When you change the set, you're changing the budget. 
having the balls to say to Dick in front of all of these people, we think we need that $100,000 to make the movie that I want to make. And and even a, a, a dropping the team aspect to say the movie that I want to make or the movie that I envision was real fucking ballsy to say. It's one on, it's one thing to have conversation like that with Dick one-on-one if you think that you have risen to his level where you can speak to him that way. But to do it in front of all of these other people, I thought was really out of line. And like you said, really showed how green he is to the realities of making a movie. He is a silver-tongued devil. For sure. But again, this is business. And that, I think, goes towards the dryness of the scene. This wasn't a flowery montage, an Oz moment, a tinkling, like, we can do it better. This is money. These are dollars and cents and bottom lines. And your your the movie I envision doesn't fit in this room. You know, that's for a conversation elsewhere. Now we're talking about dollars and cents, and you don't know what you need. I loved when Dick smacked him with that. And I get it, it was dry, but I think the scene was important. One, to, to point out the dynamic that Ray is a little bit out of his depth with ex- expectations on how movies are actually made beyond the 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 wooing of the studio and making your passion plea to make the movie. And I, I think when Dick tells him, you don't have any idea of what you need to make this movie. But I think it's also important to show the consequence of what you were talking about just changing, uh, making a significant budgetary change on, on the scenery without talking about it later on and, and costing the set designer his job. You know, Ray doesn't get fired. Right. The set designer gets fired. Because he should know better. Because he should come back and say, we're outside of the budget to do that. We're going to need like additional sign-offs on that before I just start doing it. He should know better. And Ray doesn't, obviously. And so he just thinks you can just say stuff off the cuff and that's cool and that's all good. I felt like with Ray... There are so many moments here that feel like he has grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Every small moment, Archie would never have climbed in that tub because he wouldn't ruin his shoes. That guy doesn't care about ruining his shoes. He doesn't care about the money part. He's also making decisions on the fly about $25,000 is a guy who grew up with money for sure. So there's something that there's more to Ray that's like, I need to understand him and where he's coming from. And he still doesn't really, silly kind of sounds, but doesn't really know the value of a dollar. No, I mean, I feel like we had we had this conversation about him from the first episode, the way he carries himself, the way he speaks to people above his station. And their house didn't make sense. Well, well, that too. Yeah, he speaks with the confidence of someone who grew up with money, is comfortable with it, and is not intimidated by people with money or power. I think Darren Chris does a good job of conveying that without really knowing much about his backstory. Something tells me, though, he's going to go the way of Patrick from Schitt's Creek, though. And we are never going to find out <laughs> what that backstory is. Oh, uh, and and you will be that. very sad faced. You will be very sad face at the You're end of that. Poking the bear uh, on that shit. Uh, you guys should go check out our Shit's Creek podcast. Without a paddle, the Shit's Creek podcast. I cry a lot about not knowing Patrick's background. It's a lot, but you know, and well earned, and well earned, and well and well deserved criticism. And I, I have a feeling we're going to get the same way here. But I think the point, is, I think the point you're making is 100 percent correct. Ray doesn't see the money obstacles. He doesn't have it himself. But that's never been a, that's never been an obstacle to him. He's always been able to say it'll happen. You know, he has that kind of air about him, and it costs this guy his job. I, I you know, I give the set designer credit for pointing out all of the reasons that they shouldn't do it. But you're right. He he is a division head, and he should have known better. He should have pushed back harder, having been in that meeting with Dick and knowing what the stakes were. But at the same time, 
Ray speaks with an authority that is not easy to buck, especially after you have bucked it several times. In addition to all of the budget issues going on here, now that we have a cast, we actually have to go through the script. And so we ha- there are two things to deal with the script in this episode. We have a table read. And, and I thought this was a nice scene. Not that anything really important happened here, other than seeing these people kind of slowly begin to take on the roles that they've been cast in and seeing Archie speak aloud the direction uh, in the words that he's written here as the screenwriter. I, I just really liked the scene. I liked them going around and introducing who they were. I liked the feeling of camaraderie. I liked seeing Rock practice his gas station lines, which are now going to be changed to a bar scene, so he's going to have to learn that all over again. I liked the camaraderie that they put in place here. I don't think it added a lot to the plot of the episode, but I thought it was a nice scene for what they're trying to do here. All these people coming together for a common purpose. Table reads are really interesting to get a chance to see the behind the scenes nature of when actors are first starting to understand who their characters are and first starting to form what that voice sounds like, both literally and figuratively. I know that when we watch the behind the scenes for Schitt's Creek or often when we've gone to the ATX television festival, they'll actually do a table read as like a breakout session that you can go to. Um, well, they'll have some of the actors, but what's funny is that they'll usually swap out. Like the real actor will be there that played that part, but he'll read like the grandma's role or something. And it's super funny. I appreciated the concept of the table read. And if, for people who have never seen what that looks like, I'm glad that they gave the audience a chance to kind of dip into Hollywood behind the scene a little more and see it. Yeah, I mean, it is a really special thing. If anyone wants to see the power of them, I definitely suggest you go look at the Schitt's Creek retrospective uh, Best Wishes and Warmest Regards, where they show a bit of the table read of the last episode. And, and you could just see how even just reading script around a table, no makeup, no costumes, no sets uh, can still be a powerful experience. And that was my feeling here. I actually thought this was a really powerful displayer. I think Jack was doing a really good job. I was a little underwhelmed by Camille again here. I didn't think she was connecting with the part the way same at the same level that Jack was. But I think this scene was interesting only because it really put forth how heavy and depressing this movie is, at least at the end. Yeah. How many times we heard someone say, boy, that made me really sad. Right. And Rock being like, yeah, I can't believe she jumped. I kept I kept whispering myself, don't do it. God, don't do God, it. He's such a baby, Mike. He make, like he makes my heart be like, oh, Rock. Yeah, he, if I did not know that Rock Hudson was a real person who had a real career, I'd be like, this man is doomed. <laughs> he's not going to yeah. make it. He is too gentle for this world. Um, oh, gosh. But I, I did. But Jack's response to him of, well, that's what happened. Kind of stuck with that, <laughs> you know, ju- just becomes all sorts of ironic. Right. But I guess and I, and I guess if the story was still about Peg, maybe Jack would be right. But the story isn't about Peg. It's now about Meg. So so let's get to the page-by-page edit that Dick wants to walk Archie and Ray through. I was really glad the way that Dick, like, really, really quick, like, put the kibosh on Ray and Archie, for that matter, when they're both, like, trying to kind of defend certain things. And Dick's like, so, hey, listen, this isn't going to be about y'all defending this, okay? We're going to make this better, and y'all need to zip it. Right. I like the fact that he said, I've done hundreds of these. If I'm asking you a question... It's because it needs to be better than what it is right now. It needs to be fleshed out more or explained better. Dick's not here to just hear himself speak or lend his two cents because so he can have his two cents lent. Or play a game where he's giving them the microphone to be able to defend what they did. Like, this isn't a debate. I'm telling you, this isn't good enough. You know, your message is not coming across. When I say to you, what is the point of this scene? What are we trying to do here? That's kind of rhetorical. 
Because if I'm asking that question, it doesn't work as it is. So we need to do that shit differently. So it's obvious what you're trying to do here. I felt like Dick was leading them, leading Archie here, but Archie got there on the own. So it ended up coming off as like Archie's idea. What did you think when he says, uh, what if she doesn't jump? Did you see that coming from a mile away based on how they were kind of ramping up the episode? Well, I liked his reasoning. I hadn't thought about his reasoning of the entire thing, about how when you take the white girl part out of it, we cannot afford to dismiss how it's going to affect the audience. It's not just for the impact of like, oh my God, and she gave it all up. It's like, and this is a really important message to a really specific slice of the audience that you are gonna have to be so much more careful about. I get Dick's point that this is a first and this is important to make the right message. The idea that a white girl being chewed up and spit out by Hollywood to the point of desperation and destruction is so common as to have become a trope that you're not breaking new ground with her killing herself. It's almost what is expected, which is sad. If you allow it to be the white girl and you have this, this powerful ending of loss, right? It, it, it presents the tale as a cautionary tale that it's not that it's not that she's disposable. It's just, it's, it becomes a tale more of look at the dangers that if we continue to treat people this way, this is how they end up. Because that's an important story to tell. And if not for the fact that Meg would be the first woman of color, let's say she was the 15th woman of color, then maybe you can tell that same powerful story with that same powerful message with a woman of color. But because it happens to be this particular story, now with a first woman of color in a lead role, you have to be careful about telling that powerful story. You have to, let's go try and tell another powerful story where, where we push her to the brink and she comes back, which is an equally powerful story. And it is important. And I love the idea of thinking about how can we change the message? How can, how can we say, so you're in awful circumstances and you get to like, you know, the end of your rope, but instead of jumping, you come back and fight that much harder. I think that that's always a better message. I 100% agree with you. And and Archie is exactly right. He, he agrees with you. You know, Ray says, well, that's a really different movie. And, and Archie says that it's a better movie. Because it, it is a better message to, to be to be pushed so far, but yet be able to come back. To, to be able to hear Jack down on the ground telling you it's not, all hope is not lost, you know, and, and that message getting through. And back to the table read. What did you, were you surprised that Anime Wong is along for this ride? And, and uh, she got a little round of applause from the people around the table for being there? I thought that was a nice little callback. I think it was a great callback. Surprised only from the standpoint of, I thought that they were really going to stick with just our in-house contract players. So I wasn't really certain where anime fell into all of that cost-wise and all that kind of stuff. So so that's a dry answer because that's not a really great one. But I'm really glad that she came back in the scene because obviously then we'll get to see her on set and hopefully clips of the movie and stuff like that. So I think she deserves it. Right. It's a real all-hands on deck for this movie, right? It I mean, they're does bringing feel in every, like everyone. That. Yeah. I think the only one missing, maybe, and maybe he was even there, we just didn't see him, was Jack's little friend from the opening scenes. Oh, uh, of I the hope series. he is a supernumerary. A supernumerary? Wouldn't that be so cute, uh, though, if we see him later? I hope we, it, that's got to happen now, Mike. That's got, I'm putting it in the universe. I feel like, I feel like we've now willed it in there. If so it's not, and like this has been out for forever, I'm going to feel like we're, we're changing the celluloid right now. I can feel it. 
well, he's maybe doing a wipe on the edit right now, right? That's what he specializes he in, walking too close to the camera I feel that to way. do the invisible wipes. So, so let's move to the other aspect of Dick uh, that we got this week was Ellen and Dick, right? So many sides of Dick this time. Avis has been on Ellen for a couple of episodes now, going back to George Cooker's party about go and get on that that dick dick um she she's been telling her just do it already you're in love with the guy make a move ellen expresses doubt that what if he is gay as the rumors apparently swirling around him suggest he may interesting that those rumors are out there but they're also unconfirmed you know the you know everyone knows about henry it may not be out but it's an open secret about henry dick's orientation seems to be much more whispered about or rumored about were, were you surprised that such as that as careful as he is that those rumors are out there in fact not really because i kind of feel like the idea of a man of a certain age a bachelor of a certain age who seems to carry himself well and 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 have a great job and stuff like that and and isn't ever seen with a woman is pretty much always there's a question mark i thought they I thought they had described him as a widow. I feel like he had had a wife. But still, like there's at a certain point, you're sort of like, mm, I, if you haven't seen a guy with, with a woman in some period of time, I'm just speaking from the woman's circle. This is what we say in the ladies' room. Oh. We're going to wonder. Or a well-dressed man, man of means, good job, good everything. You know, where's your lady? I had always hoped that you guys just were touching each other's boobs. Yeah, well, I, I, we talk while we're doing it. Oh, well, that's good. Well... I guess that makes it less awkward for everyone. This whole scene broke my heart. This whole dinner scene in Ellen in her clumsy kind of past. And it was so awkward. And I, I had a feeling it wasn't going to go her way. Right. And I, I, it was one of those scenes that I watched through like hands over my face kind of thing, you know, with my fingers parted because it's just so fucking awkward. The two of them are so embarrassed and he leaves and he cries outside. The whole thing just really moved me. And I thought they both did such a good Why job. Why did you think scene. he cried? Well, I think he cried for two reasons. I think he cried as because this this idea of of not being able to be who he really is out in the world is just breaking him, right? Because I think we've seen that now. We saw that at George's party with Rock, and and here it really came to a head because Ellen Ellen brought it up. I mean, she brings it up pointedly is the reason because, and she doesn't get the words out, but he knows what he what she's asking, and and I think. It's as in his face as it's ever been. And I think it's breaking him. So for that. And also because of what this may mean now for his ostensibly best friend, right? Ellen and Dick are a pair. They've done all the things that they've done in this series. They've done together as a team so far. And now that's in real jeopardy, which Ellen realizes literally the second the words are out of her mouth. She may have now just ruined this best friendship that she has. What did you think he cried? I think because... He was in such a spot where he couldn't act on the things that he wanted to act on. Here he is having to turn down his best friend and move forward with something with her because he can't commit to that life either. And so he's just stuck in this limbo. And I think I feel like that's when the majority of us cry is when you feel like neither choice is without consequences. I think that there was part of him who, who kind of thought like, you know, she described it more like, look, we could just be companions in the same house. We could just be best friends right. in the same house. And she wasn't looking for like this huge sexual craziness, just be us. And I understood why he couldn't commit to that because it would be like the ultimate beard fraud situation. And I got that. But once you are saying like, I'm willing to hurt my best friend, then it's like you almost have to commit and go the other way to be like, if I'm going to do that, then I better just go to the fucking Molly house already. 
think this was the the proverbial straw that broke the closeted gay camel's back. With this now open and done and broken, what else is holding him back? His best friend now has laid him bare through her own pining. Why hide it at this point anymore? Right. I mean, he has to still keep it hidden, but it's more like it's more like if you're if you're not going to accept the life of companionship and you're not going to go that route, then just pull the trigger and enjoy the sexual side of who you are, because otherwise you're like denying both sides of yourself. And that is what is breaking him. I think by going to the Molly house, it's more than that, though. I think it's not keeping it hidden anymore. There's no secrecy in that Molly house, not for someone as well known in this town as Dick Samuels. It's a safe space when you're at George's party and you're hanging around and checking out the dessert table. And that's a closed circuit. Everyone is, you know, finger against the side of their nose, keeping down low. Even Henry, to a large extent, is not blowing up Dick's spot. I mean, he may needle him one-on-one as being, you know, a a homo or whatever, but he's not going out and and doing that around town. And he certainly could. He certainly has a personality, uh, an unstable personality where he would, but going to the Molly house, that's a, that's a declaration of, uh, of not just committing to the sexual side of it, but also not hiding it anymore because a lot of people in that in that bar are going to know who Dick Samuels is. He took the leap. He jumped, as the <laughs> title of the episode would suggest. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's going to be definite fallout. Yeah. I'm sad about that. I hope that it's not too much. Holland Taylor did a really great job with this in terms of just the small little cracks in her voice, the small little change of tone, the way that she was so hopeful and embarrassed and everything all in one breath was like, it was a very, very good scene for all the things that I maybe didn't like about a couple of the other scenes in this episode being a little dry or a little boring. This one was so layered and so full of feeling and life and and just we've all been there we've all been in like a situation where it's like i don't want to hurt this person and also like i also can't do this so what do i do joe mantello who plays dick samuels also really i think brought home i think the two of these i think these two uh, holland taylor I, i've loved for a long time uh, joe mantello i didn't know his imdb is very short he's only got seven credits on his imdb it's hollywood He's got a TV movie uh, called The Normal Heart from 2014. He did two episodes of Law and Order in the 90s, three episodes on a show called CPW, an episode on Sisters in the early 90s, The Days and Nights of Molly Todd, one episode in 1990, wow. and then a movie called Cookie from 89. Dang. So not a lot in front of the camera. Um, he's done a little bit of directing too. Uh, yeah. Oh, he directed The Boys in the Band. I thought there were just certain little things that he's done. Like when, when Eleanor Roosevelt pulled up and he's smiling outside, his smile is dead on what you would have, which is like that, like excited slash proud slash host slash bubbling with excitement kind of thing. I, he is doing great with his just like small facial moments. Love him. The reason we don't know him from TV or movies is he is a theater guy. He is, uh, he's known for uh, work that he did in Wicked, Take Me Out, Assassins, and he was one of the original Broadway cast members in Angels in America. Oh, see? Okay. So, yeah, so he does not have a big TV resume, but he's got, like so many of the characters in this show, has got a strong theater background. I love so. that. I love that. Yeah, I feel like you can feel that off of him. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, all these one-on-one moments that are really personal are really about the dialogue. I think these theater folks really just hit it out of the park because... I, don't know, I think they're just inclined towards that. I, I've really loved his work the last couple of episodes. Really, really since the George party 
I've really, really just been drawn to his his characterization and the way he's really just kind of handled himself and uh, and portrayed this complex character. But yeah, so there's going to be fallout between him and Ellen. I think we have to see how that relationship goes forward now, especially since the two of them are the ones who are really carrying Meg going forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one storyline that came up in this episode that I was a little unsure why it was being shared with us, I guess, was Jean Crandall and the whole like giving her this role that that she deserves that can finally launch her into the spotlight instead of just always being sort of in the background or having these smaller roles. Do you think that that's going somewhere prediction wise here? Are we are we going to see more of that? Or is it somehow going to cross paths with our Meg story? Wait, just having said that, that makes me wonder. It, do you think they might come out at the same time? Do you think they might both be up against each other in the awards yeah. race? Possibly. Wouldn't I mean, they're going to definitely be made parallel. It may make sense, and it would certainly add a sense of drama. Though I feel like Jean has positioned herself as like a mother of the set, not that she is going to be in competition against these young. I agree, starlets. but it would still be like sort of like old Hollywood versus new Hollywood. For sure. I, I feel like, you know, they hired Mira Servino and so they needed to do something with her is what my current feeling is, which is sad. And I hope that she gets a because I feel like she's done an interesting job with the character, especially these last two episodes. But yeah, just really out of left field. I haven't watched ahead, so I really don't know. But I know that it makes sense to me that it is a reasonable trajectory that Meg is either going to crash and burn or go to award season. And since this is a rewrite, I'm guessing it's going towards award season. And the only reason why we would follow along with anyone else making a movie at this time would be if it's going to be a rivalry in some way. Jean's story was sufficiently wrapped up with me last week that she had the affair. She came clean to the affair. She was forgiven for the affair. Then she had the fun scene with the, with the screen test with the younger actors. I didn't know that I really needed to see her anymore she's got to have more now that they're giving her the subplot with lee miller and lee miller just to you know because we like to highlight the real people lee miller really was a real person uh she was a fashion model in the 20s and she became a fashion photographer and then uh she became during world war ii became a war correspondent for uh vogue magazine very cool yeah so she she really uh, did it all kind of in the fashion space so interesting that Jean, as an aging hollywood beauty is taking on that role i like it i like it a lot and i i that is the only possible reason i could come up with with why we would be following Jean's storyline moving forward I mean, with only two episodes left, uh, it's interesting that they're introducing it now. Um, Do you right? think there's going to be season two? I think I haven't watched ahead, so I think it really depends on how episode seven ends. Good call. It seems to me that they're telling a very self-contained story, right? Uh, the idea of Meg, or Peg, making of Peg, and then presumably what the fallout of making Peg will be. That's a self-contained story that seems with two episodes left and the way they've kind of sped through this we're going to get through a lot of that if not all of that story here so i don't know i don't know intrigue okay so then that last part mike when they are bringing up this concept of the budget and telling them telling ray that you're going to have to pay for this stuff that that you know you went over twenty five thousand dollars. yeah and then we see the guys hanging out in the soda shop there talking about the golden tip and it seems like we're getting to the point of like all right well here's how we're gonna get that money back we're gonna you know go turn tricks we got Henrietta over there. Obviously, boy, did you call it on that hand touching of the man in the in the soda shop that that was her guy all along. Were you surprised at the reveal there of the Henrietta heading away or not really? I was surprised at how fast it all wrapped itself up with. I was really sad that it wasn't his kids and stuff. That felt like extra bad. 
I felt extra bad, but also in like a way that Rock is so innocent, like whispering, I don't do it, yeah. uh, don't do it, Meg, don't do it, Meg. The idea that he didn't do the math. Do men do the math? I mean, if I hadn't had sex with my wife in two months and then she comes home and she is two months pregnant, I probably would do the math on that. But I, it never even occurred to me that that had been the thing. So I wasn't approaching it from that. Like, the infidelity made more sense to me than it not being his kids. That was that was kind of a, a twist shock. And that she was leaving him and that it was done. Like, there was no, this is not going to be a long drawn out thing. She's, you yeah. know, gone girl, She's gone. She's got a whole life planned. But knowing her side of the story about we didn't bone until after I was already eight, no, what, 11 weeks pregnant. We didn't bone? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think that was a direct quote, didn't she say? She said we. She did. She was like, bone. "Yo, man, we didn't even bone, bra." <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even lay pipe until I was eleven weeks pregnant. Uh, and so that I probably would have done the math on. Been like, I don't remember coming inside of her recently oh, to God. make that happen. Uh, yeah. So, so in that situation, yeah, that may be. But I think doesn't that go towards the idea that Jack is just so so checked out, right? He didn't friggin' know. He's just so self consumed i mean he is a selfish person who had moved on from his relationship he he took he brought her out to la but then promptly left her at home to go pursue his dreams okay so let me ask you this so have you changed a little bit on your position about jack because or your assessment of jack as a character because i feel like there was some part of us that we felt like you know he's a guy who's willing to do just about anything at all maybe anything at all to provide for his family to to see through this dream and and all this and we were kind of feeling kind of good about him in a little bit i want to say I'm good is like, for lack of a better word, we were, we were, we could see his point of like, I'm going to work this hard because I really want to provide for my family, right? Crying on her lap, all that stuff. We weren't thinking he was a selfish dick at that point. So did he change well, or did we just get more info or what? Or you were feeling selfish dick at that point? Yeah, I think going to the movies and going and standing outside a gate instead of going and getting a real fucking job is a selfish move. But I, I I believed him when he said that he did not want to do the gigolo thing, uh, that he, you know, the idea that he was doing that really reluctantly to provide for his family because it was becoming so dire. So, okay. I, and I'm trying to drill down because we really did talk about this in, in a couple of earlier episodes. So the idea of pursuing his dream and not getting a job should he have gotten like a regular part-time job or something like that and we would have felt like he was being less less selfish or i had gotten comfortable with the idea of being a gigolo in order to support his family because i believed i believed he was doing it out of necessity if the idea is you need to provide for your family while still trying to pursue your dreams that seems to be as good a making a money making thing as any other job that someone with zero skills has. And I mean, that's the impression we get from him in the opening scenes when they go to the bank, right? He has no skills. He was in the army and then now he's trying to be an actor. So he's got his face and he's got his body and not much else. He, he was employing that the best way possible to support his family. While I'm not a fan of that, I respected it as a choice of, I'm not doing it because I love pussy so much. I'm doing it because, you know, it's paying me money to support my family so the lights don't get turned off while allowing me to also. So where does the selfishness come in? The idea, though, that he brought her out here, that he before all of this, I mean, I don't think we saw the first day he got picked up by Ernie at the bar. 
I got the impression he had been doing this for a while. When they get rejected at the bank, he had already had this narrative that he was a supernumerary. He had been standing outside those gates to no avail for a long time. He was at that bar several times before Ernie, you know, approached him. That it took him so long to go and try and do something is, I guess, where being it's being selfish. But I think I think the larger issue is I just don't think it was a good match. I don't think she really understood what their life was going to be like out here. I guess that's my point. She wasn't on the same page as him as what it was going to look like trying to become an actor out in Hollywood so far from their small town where they lived. So I think from that point of view, it was unfair and that it never seemed that he actually had a conversation with her about what it was going to look they like. They never fleshed out Henrietta's, you know, character in any for- sort of way that I understood why she signed up for this life at all ever um it never seemed to make any sense to me so i don't know that i i don't know that i lean towards selfishness as much as i just lean towards what you're saying now which is like much more like they're just not a match like i don't know they had very different ideas of what they wanted and very different ideas of what they could handle and even when he was being quote unquote successful she wasn't even happy about that I think, I think selfish insofar as, again, just waiting so long. You know, if Ernie doesn't approach him in his bar, what does he do? Does he keep just standing outside the gates at the studio, just keep going to the, the movie theater and eating popcorn and watching movies instead of getting a job? Like, get a fucking job, you hippie. Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know? I guess that's my feeling. That That's the selfishness of it. If not for Ernie being his, uh, what would you call him? Uh, pimp? Yeah. Uh, pimp Jiminy? Oh, Jiminy Pimp, yeah. If not for being his Jiminy pimp and giving him a an avenue to provide for his family, what is, what happens to them? What happens to Costello's? Yeah, I think that she would have, I mean, I think she had to go find something else. And honestly, I mean, once she's pregnant and pregnant with twins, good Lord. I mean, she this, this situation was just not going anywhere. So she, she, she did the right thing to move on. Yeah, kind of shitty, though, that she waited so long to tell him about the paternity. Oh, my God, Mike. That, that is terrible shit. I just just move on i mean it feels like something she should have done a couple months ago agreed 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 because why now like what what now prompted her to tell him only that he caught her making googlies at the no i think that i think that it was that the other guy was ready to move forward to be honest with you i think it was that he his father was ready to retire from the hardware store back in that town and he was going to take it over and so so this is it so this is the big time to go and move and have their life together and have their babies together. Well, I mean, I guess as a woman, you know, smart on her, right? You, I mean, everyone says you should never quit a current job until you have your next job lined up. So I guess good on her to not leave her current marriage until she has her next baby daddy marriage uh, relationship lined up for sure. Yeah. She done Jack dirt. Jack Jack wasn't squeaky clean. It wasn't hard to hard to have that dirt hanging around. True. So, so we're assuming that the big way we're getting the money is that all the boys are going to go work at the Golden Tip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even Ray, who's going to have to stay as above board as possible because he's going to tell Camille everything. I think that Camille and Claire are going to get in on this action as well. I'm all about Which that. I think is just going to be crazy and wild. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. I think Jack's going back to work, too. Uh, they I all mean, are. Why wouldn't Absolutely. You know? I think they all are. Well, I'm looking forward to number six. I can't wait to find out what's going to happen already. I'm ready. It's only two episodes left, so they better pack in a lot of stuff. I think they're going to be packing a lot of stuff. we got a lot more dick coming. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. 
Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Aww.